The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. We're going to finish the book of Luke, which I'm a little bit, uh, it always feels a little like uh, bittersweet, like an accomplishment when we finish the book, right? But also like, man, that was a, a fruitful season. And I got to be honest with you, like, I think I've enjoyed going through the book of Luke more than anything that we've taught or anything that we've studied together here at Heritage in 11 years. I think this has been my favorite. Have you guys been blessed by studying the book of Luke as well? Yeah? So t- we're going to put a bow on it today. All five of you that were blessed, we're going to put a bow on this. The rest of you, you're like, thank God it's over. <laughs> no, so here's what I'd like you to do. Will you just stand with me in honor of the word of the Lord? And we're going to read Luke 24, starting in verse 36. And the word of God says this. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate before them. And he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And we're continually in the temple blessing God. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we bow before you now. We thank you for our time in Luke. And we open our hearts and ask that you would speak to us and that you would speak to your people. Lord, I pray for Grace Point Church in North Las Vegas. I pray for Travis, who's speaking even right now probably, Lord, that you would empower him by your spirit to declare your gospel and you would save Even just a handful of that 1.9 million people that don't know you, Lord, may you save them today. May you empower that church. May you empower this church. May you empower all your churches to preach your gospel and bring people to a saving knowledge of you. And Lord, as we wrap up our time in Luke, Lord, again, I just thank you for how you have revealed yourself to us. I thank you for how you have blessed us. And now I pray, Lord, that as we see the conclusion, that all of this would matter. That, Lord, this wouldn't just be an exercise in religion or some intellectual assent, but that you might change our hearts and that there might be fruit because of the seeds you have planted as we've gone through this book. So, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our King, our Rock, our Redeemer. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. You can be seated. 65 sermons. That's a long time, right? That's how long it's taken us. You guys remember them all? 
I don't. So <laughs> it happens that way. But we've seen a lot. We've seen a lot. I mean, this is the story of Jesus Christ. We've seen him born in humility, born to poor, I mean, what we would almost consider kids to this day ourselves, in a manger, on the road, running from those who would try to extinguish him. We've seen him grow. He grew in faithfulness and knowledge. We saw him in the temple. We saw him being dedicated. We saw him then later as a younger boy, but, or not younger, but as a young boy uh, in the temple, literally talking back and forth with the, the religious elite of that day in a way that just stunned them by his knowledge of the scriptures and his understanding. We saw him grow, and then we saw his ministry take off. And man, the ministry of Jesus, it was so different. Don't forget that. It was so different than anything that they had ever seen before. Because the ministry of Jesus was marked by something that was almost new to the people of Israel. Something that, that, the, ministry there, that the, the ministry of God was supposed to be characterized by, but had long since forgotten. The ministry of Jesus was marked by mercy. I mean, the religious leaders there, they're teaching the law and they're teaching do this and do this and do this. And if you do that and do that and do that, then you're filthy and you're dirty and you're not like us. And burdens were placed on people and there was like hierarchies that were built and people would look down on one another and, and, and it was nothing like God. And it, it just seems wrong. I mean, shouldn't they have known different? Because from the very day that God had revealed himself to Moses, what did he say? I mean, in one of the most important scriptures in the Bible, in Exodus 34, when Moses says, Lord, if I have found any favor in your sight, show me your glory. Show me who you are. Show me your, that glory there doesn't just mean I want to see the glow. It means I want to see your essence. I want to see what makes you, you. I want to see who you are. And when God reveals himself to him, what is it that he says? Out of all the things he declares, what's the thing he says first? The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful. And mercy had long got left in the dust in the Jewish culture at that time. And then this rabbi shows up, Jesus comes, and, and suddenly like people that are sick, that, that the religious elite of that day would have crossed the street to avoid, like in the story of the Good Samaritan, like Jesus doesn't just turn to them, but he like touches them. And he's healing them. He's restoring them. He's welcoming them. He's, he, he's showing that he cares about what they're going through and that he has the answer to it. And, and no one's ever seen anything like it. Remember how he would cast demons out? Like he's changing lives drastically and setting people free. Remember the one story where he crosses the lake and he goes over to uh, the Decapolis area, the Gadarenes, and there's this guy that is completely possessed by demons. You remember that? They call him the demoniac, honestly. And he's over there. He's such an outcast by the culture there because of this demonic possession that he's living among tombs. Like, they're looking at him like, you are so wicked, so perverse, so disgusting. You get out. You have no place with us. Your filthiness and your wickedness means you have to stay away. And then Jesus comes and he heals him. He, he casts the demons out, casts them into the pigs. Remember that? The pigs go commit pigicide off the cliff and they all die. Remember what happened in that, by the way? It's crazy how he would change things, right? The, the village all comes and they see this guy. They can see his life's been completely transformed. 
Because this is a guy that used to like flop on the ground and go into convulsions and all sorts of things because of the demons. And, and then when the town comes and sees him, they see Jesus and they see this guy sitting there and he's just sitting there like he's in his right mind. Like they've never seen him before. And they're just blown away, a little bit terrified, maybe upset about the pigs. And, and, and what's their reaction? Jesus, you, you get out of here. You got to go. But remember what happened? The demoniac's like, I want to go with you. This guy, he's like, I, you've changed my life. I want to go with you. And Jesus says what to him? He says, no, no, no. You've got to stay here. You've got to stay here. You're going to be a witness and a living testimony to what I've done to all these people around here. And side note, by the way, one of the things that people like to use to attack the Bible is actually a story called the story where Jesus feeds the 4,000. Now, when we talk about Jesus feeding the thousands, the one we grab to most often is Jesus feeds the how many? 5,000. But there's another story in one of the other Gospels where Jesus feeds 4,000. In the story of the 5,000, he has 12 baskets left over. In the feeding of the 4,000, he has seven baskets left over. In the story of the 5,000, there's this many fish and this much bread. In the 4,000, it's a different combination of fish and bread. And so people will look at the story and go, see the Bible, they're just contradicting with one another. They're not telling the same story. They're not true. And it's garbage because the truth is it's two completely different incidents. One happens over in Galilee where Jesus is from, but then later Jesus crosses the Sea of Galilee again and goes to where? To Decapolis to the place where he had previously cast the demons out. And 4,000 people come and are fed and taught by Jesus on the bank. Why do they go from Jesus get out of here to 4,000 people, and actually more than that, showing up there to be fed and taught by him? Because there's a guy whose life was changed, who Jesus commissioned to be a missionary, to point to him, to tell people about the good things that he had done, and as that story spread through that area, when Jesus came back, people were like, I got to go see what's going on here because that guy's different now. Uh, I'll spoil the end of my sermon now. That's what we're supposed to do. But we'll get there in just a minute. So you see how Jesus is like changing lives and he's showing all this mercy. He's raising people from the dead. The widow's son, remember that? The, this widow who her son dies, like that's her future. If you're a widow, you don't have a husband to provide for you. Your son dies, you are destined to poverty. She is hopeless and desperate. And Jesus comes into that situation and heals, raises this kid from the dead. It's unbelievable. And then we've seen his teachings. Like Jesus' teachings are, are they're calling people to a completely different way of life. They're speaking about the kingdom of God and they're speaking about things like grace and love and service to one another when they're used to like oppression and bonds and, and weights on their shoulders, performance-based religion. I've got to do this to make God happy with me. And he's talking about a whole completely different way of living and he's calling them to this thing called the kingdom of God. And it's revolutionary. And it's not just that it's a new idea. He's teaching this from the scriptures in a way that no one had ever heard, never understood, and they had never seen an authority, never seen anyone teach with the kind of authority that Jesus did. It was something they'd never seen before. It was amazing. The problem is, as that grew, so did the opposition. And so the religious elite of that day, when they see what Jesus is calling people to, they see the following growing, and they see Jesus calling out that old, faulty system they want to get rid of him. 
And so they start setting traps at first to fool him, hoping that the people will see that this guy's teachings are off. He doesn't really know what he's doing. He'll mess up. They'll go, oh, he's just a weirdo. And they'll, it, but, the, but it doesn't work, and the traps don't work. And sooner or later, they're just like, fine, let's kill him. And so they start devising plans to kill him. And then Jesus, knowing that's what's waiting for him in Jerusalem, turns his face towards Jerusalem and dives head first into it. He goes into Jerusalem where he dies on the cross for our sins. A brutal, I, if you weren't here when we studied the crucifixion just about three weeks ago, I, I hope you'll go back and listen to it again because it is a brutal, gruesome, heavy thing. And that just barely scratches the surface. And Jesus did that to pay the price for our sin. He did that to protect us because our sin and rebellion had destined us towards death. And so Jesus went and endured the death that we could never possibly, we, we had no hope at paying that price. He goes to Jerusalem and does it for us. And he dies and he's buried. But on the third day, get ready for an amen here just so you know. Don't disappoint me. On the third day, the stone rolls away and Jesus Christ walks out fully and totally, here it comes, alive. Amen. He's alive. It's an incredible story. He's defeated death. Death for us is just temporary if your faith is in Jesus. Jesus arising from the tomb assures us that when we die, we will rise again in glory with him. That our end is not ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Our end is glory and eternity and being with him and like him because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And suddenly the people of Israel have hope. Imagine that. Where would you find hope anyway before? You're under the oppressive thumb of Rome. You're in a performance-based system that you know you can never fully live up to. People look down on you. There's judgment because of religion and all these kinds of things. Hope? How do you have hope? You have hope in Jesus. And so he defeats this. And he ascends into heaven, as we're going to see here soon. And so right now, this is the conclusion of that story, sort of. So in Luke chapter 24, we pick up right on the heels of the story that Sam walked through with you guys last night on the road to Emmaus. And um, especially if you weren't here, the road to Emmaus really sets the scene for this story. Because in the story of the road to Emmaus, we know a few things. We know it's really late. It's late in the day. These disciples are kind of making their way back from Jerusalem because they think it's over. We thought Jesus was the one, they say. We thought he was the guy. It didn't work, so they're leaving Jerusalem now. Passover's over. Jesus is dead. We don't know what to do now. They're making their way back, this group of guys. And suddenly Jesus appears there with them, and he's literally talking with them like, hey, guys, what's going on? You guys look seriously depressed. Like, what's going on? And they're like, we're where have you been, man? Like, do you have any idea what just went on? And they're talking about it. And Jesus begins, you know the story, he's teaching, and he's like, no, don't you understand? He starts talking about what actually happened, and this is how it's supposed to be, and he goes into the house, and he breaks bread with them, and they suddenly realize that it's Jesus, and they're just blown away. Well, in that story, as they're making their way back, it says actually in verse 29 of Luke 24, it says, but they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us, for it's toward the evening, the day is far spent. So he went in to stay with them. So it's really late, and they're like, listen, just come stay with us, man. It's late at night, the day's over, just come stay with us. And he goes in, 
He has that meal with them, and that's when their eyes are open, and they're like, this is Jesus, and then poof, he's gone. So in that moment, first they're like, you need to come inside. It's dangerous at night. You don't want to travel at night. Just come stay with us. But now, because of what they understand and what they realize, they're like, I don't care if it's late or not. We can't stay here. So the text says that they jump up even at that hour, and they're like, back to Jerusalem, man. We got to go tell some people. Now, Jerusalem, we know from verse 13, that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus that was how many? Seven miles from Jerusalem. So middle of the night, they're jumping up and making a seven-mile trip back to Jerusalem, going to find the rest of the disciples where they're all gathered together so they can tell them about what's happened. So by the time they find the disciples, it's late or early, depending on your perspective, right? So as this happens, we come to verse 36. And as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself, oh, and I should say, by the way, just for, for backup, in verse 33, it does say they rose that same hour, returned to Jerusalem, they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together. And, the, and saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. So when they come in the room, these guys are all in there and they're talking about, and this is important, they're talking about, hey, he's risen. In fact, they use the word indeed, which means with a surety. No, like, he's really alive. Like, they're hearing about these testimonies that have come in, and they're talking about it. Like, he's risen. So here come the guys from Emmaus. They walk in the room, and those guys in the room, oh, man, I'm glad you guys got here. You're not going to believe this. He's risen. And they're like, we know. We just had a meal with him. Like, that's kind of what's happening here. Verse 36. And as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said, peace be to you. Now, have you ever had one of those things where you're like talking about somebody. It's usually negative when this happens, it seems like, but where you're like talking about somebody and then you realize like they're right there and you got to figure out what you're going to do. You ever had that? Like, man, I'll tell you, Sam. I don't know what I'm going to do with that guy. That, they, oh, uh, Sam, we were just talking about how much we love you and appreciate you and what a great guy, you know, that kind of a thing. This is a little different than that. This isn't like he was nearby. Like Jesus appears before them. He's there. He stood among them. It, it demonstrates the difference between his earthly body and his resurrection body. Even in the story of the Emmaus Road, like he's, he's with them and then suddenly he's gone, just vanished. And now suddenly he's with them. It's this remarkable thing. And you guys, you know what the scriptures say, right? In that day, when we're rejoined with him again for eternity, when we see him, we will be what? Like him. Anybody tired of your current body and could go for some resurrection body right now? Listen, guys, I did the unthinkable this week. Um, I, I had to eat crow, too, because I've made fun of this. But I did the unthinkable this week. I started CrossFit. Ugh, I know. So uh, invest in my insurance company because uh, they're going to spend some money here real soon. But um, that, that's, and so all week, it's just been like, I can't move. I thought CrossFit was supposed to help me move. I can't move. Like, I'm hurting in painful ways. And then I'm reading this passage, and I'm like, oh, I could so go for some resurrection body right now. It's coming. There's hope. These broken down vessels we're in right now are not our permanent home. Can I get an amen? It is true. But there's something else that's really cool that's happening right here that I do want to point out. It's kind of buried in the Greek translation a little bit, but it says that when Jesus appeared, he said to them, peace be to you. Now, the original language, the way that that's written, it's what's called a historical present. Um, so, so the verb there, it's not just meant to say that that's what he said on that day back then, but it's as if that's still what he's continually saying. 
So, so it's a way of contemporizing something that happened in the past. Maybe a way that can help you understand that is um, if you've ever been to like Washington, D.C., and you go to maybe the Lincoln Memorial, or you go to um, Arlington, or the Vietnam Memorial, or one of those places. If you've ever been there, maybe you've had that experience where you almost feel like you're walking onto some sort of holy ground. And it, it, it's not in a spiritual sense so much. It, it's like the history of what happened then is speaking to you now. Does that make sense? So it's like the thing that happened is still speaking to us. That's what he says. And Luke doesn't do this anywhere else. He does it here. And this is what I think he's saying. He's saying the resurrected Jesus said to his followers then and is still saying to his people today, peace be to you. And that doesn't just mean like peace, like ah, tropical vacation. No, it, it, it means salvation. It means hope. It means freedom. It means forgiveness. Peace be to you, Mitch. Peace be to you, Michael. Peace be to every single one of you. The resurrected body, our living Lord, is still to this day, I think it's intentional. Luke's, Luke's a good writer. He's a doctor, a physician, a historian, and he's specific with everything he does. And right here he says, and Jesus said to them and is still saying to us, peace be to you. That's good news. Amen? Amen. So he goes on, verse 37. But they were startled and frightened, for sure, and thought that they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your heart? Now listen, they know, remember what they were talking about before? What were they saying? He's alive. In fact, they were saying what? He's truly alive. So they know it. They've heard testimony of people that they trust. They know he's alive. They know it. They don't know it. It, it. it hasn't gotten there. So last week, coming back from man camp, I had this great opportunity. There's this young couple that I met this last year and got to become friends with, and they started coming to Heritage and actually got saved this year here at Heritage. And uh, they ended up, a transfer happened. She's in the military, and so they're moving and they were like, listen, we're getting married, and before we move, we want to get married, and we're rock climbers, and we want to get married at Smith Rocks, would you do our wedding? And the Lord just awesomely arranged everything that we just happened to be coming back from man camp, which literally drives right past Smith Rocks, um, and that's where they wanted to get married. And I was like, oh man, this is awesome, let's do it. So I got to go do their wedding last week, and it was the coolest wedding I've ever done with the rocks in the background. After that, we went into Redmond and all had dinner together and everything, and I was talking to Jake, and I was like, so Jake, man, he's got his ring on his finger, he's married, he's signed the paperwork, I've said I pronounce you, it's all done, right? So I'm like, hey, Jake, man, so how's it feel, man? You feel married? And he's like, nah, man, I don't even feel it yet. Now, what does that mean? He knows he's married, he's got the ring. He knows he's married, he was there. He said I do himself, he knows it. But it hasn't translated into like, oh, I, this is now like in my spirit, like I feel this, I'm going to live this out. You guys know what I'm talking about there? So that's what's happening here. They know it, they don't know it. They're wrestling with it. And if I can say, notice something else too. It says here, why are you, it actually literally is, why are you still troubled? And why do doubts arouse in your hearts? Can I, can I just say maybe to some of you guys, are you struggling with doubt? Or do you go through seasons where you're like, I believe this. Ugh. 
I'm wrestling with this. You ever have that? Or do you read that passage in Mark where the guy's like, Lord, I believe. Help me with my unbelief. Listen, Jesus is not afraid of your doubts. Jesus is not ashamed of your doubts, and he will engage in your doubts. But can I just encourage you in this way? Take your doubts to Jesus, though. What tends to happen is people with doubts go to people who express doubts, which usually, sadly, is not people in the church. It's people that left the church. So the people that leave the church go, yeah, I just couldn't reconcile this and this, and I had doubts about that and that and that, and so I'm out. And then it's like, I don't know if you've ever had like a friend who's on the edge of divorce. It's almost like people that went through divorce and are suddenly pro-divorce. It's like they sweep in like SWAT teams all of a sudden and become friends with them. It's just, it's, it's amazing how that comes. And so suddenly you're like, oh man, they're just getting counsel from like the worst place in this moment. I wish this wasn't happening. And that actually happens, I think, a lot. With Christians who have doubts, they don't know where to go with those doubts because church may not feel like the safe place to go because we all act like we've got everything polished and figured out. And so they end up going to a place that's not a good place to go. And that's where I'd say it's good for us to be honest about the things that we doubt. It's good for us to be honest and say, man, I believe, but there's things I'm still trying to reconcile and figure out. and, And there's things that still I struggle with and whatever that may be, but bring them to Jesus. And I would say for those of you that have unbelieving friends and stuff, create environments around you that makes it okay for people to bring those doubts to you as well. Because Jesus will entertain those things. If you seek him, you will find him. And he will show you that he's for real. He will show you that he's alive. He will show you that he's real. Like, look what he does with these guys. Verse 39. See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed him his hands and his feet. Now, Luke's a doctor. Luke's a physician and a historian. So he's introducing empirical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is what he's telling us here, that Jesus came. He didn't just stand there. Like, he showed him. He showed us his hands and feet. Now, what does he mean by that? Like, did he just go, hey, look at my hands, check check them out. You can see my palm. Is that what he's showing him? No, what's he, what's he showing them when it says hands and feet? What's he showing them? The scars, the wounds, they're still there. And I'll tell you something that has always humbled me. You know in the scriptures it says that, uh, well, here, here we go, let's do it this way. One of the misconceptions that some people have, this won't be one of our Sunday topics, although it could be, um, there's no crying in heaven. You ever heard people say that? Oh, it's just all smiles and happy. There's no crying in heaven. That's not true. Um, There's no weeping and mourning out of sadness in heaven. But the Bible actually says, in fact, that God himself will wipe away our tears. You go, well, what in the world? If everything's perfect and there's nothing broken, like, what would we be weeping over? I don't understand what that would be. Um, I, I think it's this, because here's the deal. We talked about our resurrection bodies. Like, just imagine, like, the aches and pains are gone, those of you my age and above. Um, uh, the fears of getting old are gone, those of you younger than me. Like, all, all of those things, the, the death, the disease, the decay, all of that stuff is gone. You'll never feel better than you feel in that moment. And then you see Jesus. And what does the Bible say about it? When we see him, we'll see him as what? A lamb having been slain. 
That means that we suddenly have these perfected, incredible bodies. And Jesus, in perfect eternity, is still bearing the scars of what it cost for us to get there. And my guess is, that's when I'm going to cry. That's when I'm going to weep. Not out of sorrow, but just amazement and unbelief at the love that the Son of God has for me. Something else. Something else. Those scars matter. And one day he's going to show you too. It's real. But he's really, really alive. This is a physical body resurrection. This is not a ghost. Okay? And, and then he goes here, says in verse 41, and while they still believed for joy and were marveling. So they're just, I just can't believe this. Like, they're just blown away by what's happening. He said to them, have you anything here to eat? Now remember, it's middle of the night, right? So we're talking leftovers, which is really unfortunate because this is not the breakfast I would want. It says, and they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Now, I, this is a little weird. So I, don't, I used to wonder, like, why would you break these verses? Like, if you look at your Bible, it's broken up. Verse 42, they gave him a piece of broiled fish. Verse 43, he took it and ate it before them. Like, if you're going through and you're like, I want to start memorizing some scripture. Let me pick a verse to memorize. My hunch is you would not go, oh, I think I'm going to memorize Luke 24, 43. He took it and ate it before them. And you're walking around your house. He took it and ate it before them. He took it and ate it before them. You're like trying to memorize. Like, you're probably not going to be drawn to that. Um, when I was teaching the school of discipleship in Mexico years ago, I, I would take these college kids that I was teaching down there, and every so often I would assign them Bible verses to go and just spend some quiet time for 15 minutes or so and meditating on. And, and I would say, hey, I want you to pray about this and read about this and write on this and then come back and tell me what you got. And every once in a while, and it's just because of me because I'm a dork, every once in a while I would pick like a verse like this. He took it and ate it before them, go. Just thinking they're going to be, and I would watch from a distance and you see them all, like you see them from the back and they're like this. They're like looking around to see 24, is that right? Did he say 20? Okay, but then they would come back with some of the weirdest stuff. Okay, he took it. That means he took our, it was hilarious. But what, why the breakdown? That's a little bit weird. Here's why, what Luke's really trying to get apart, and this is important. There was a strict divide in that culture between spiritual and physical. And it would grow because of Greek philosophy. When you get into the book of Colossians, you'll see that something called Gnosticism has invaded the church. And the Gnostics believed that there were these higher uh, levels of understanding and intelligence that you could attain to. Um, and the way that you attained to them was this. You had to grow in the spiritual life. And the spiritual life was pure and holy. It's the world. It's this earthly life that's broken and dark and messed up. And so the way that we ascend to God, the way that we grow in our understanding is we starve the flesh and we just focus on things that are spiritual. So we, they would even beat themselves, experience pain as a way of showing that they hated the fleshly parts of the world, anything made of matter, and try to focus on physical. And so a spirit eating fish seems comical to us, but this is Luke pointing out, like, no, no, you guys don't understand. This wasn't a ghost. This was a, he's really alive. Living, breathing, flesh and bone. Not a ghost, not a spirit. He ate fish for goodness sakes. Jesus is alive. Amen? And so it's important. These are good verses. You can memorize these verses. Amen? It's worth that. It really is. So he's alive. They know it. 
He appears to him. He showed him the proof. All good, right? Everything's done. Not quite. Verse 44. And then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Now listen, I, I know... I know Sam covered this last week in the Road to Emmaus story. I know that you have heard us say this here at Heritage um, over and over and over in every setting from Bible studies to retreats to sermon after sermon after sermon after sermon after sermon. I know that we don't need to go there. We don't need to deal with it again. So let's say it again. You cannot understand the scriptures apart from Jesus. The living word interprets the written word. This is what John even tells us. If you, and we can do this because the end of Luke is one page from John. Unless you have a study Bible, there might be some maps you have to skip. But if you turn to page to the right in John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And He was in the beginning with God. And then down to verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He is the Word. He interprets the Word. Everything in the Word of God points to and is fulfilled by Jesus. If you're ever in some trivia contest or a pastor at a sermon barks out some question and you're not sure but you just really want to get a right answer for once in your life, you could probably just from now on make the practice of saying, Jesus, at everything that gets said, you're going to be right more often than you're wrong. Because the whole Bible is about Jesus, the whole thing. You guys remember on Easter Sunday, I talked about that movie, The Sixth Sense. Now, if you haven't seen it, if you like scary movies, I guess you can go see it, but uh, if you haven't seen it, I spoiled the ending, and I don't care, it's 20 years old, and then funny enough, at man camp last week, Ty Neal used the exact same thing, but it doesn't matter. So here's the deal. You can't, if you watched that movie, because we know the, the end, you find out like in the last 30 seconds of the movie, Bruce Willis has been dead the whole time. Now imagine, if you had gone to that movie, and with like 10 minutes left in the movie, you got a phone call, you got called into work, something happened, car got towed, whatever. You had to leave. And you're leaving, and you're like, did you see the movie? Yeah, I saw it. It was pretty creepy. I thought I understood it all. The truth is, you have no idea what that movie's about if you missed the last part of that movie. You have no idea. You missed everything. The last 30 seconds of that movie translates everything that happened the rest of the time. And that's the way this works. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is the key to understanding for all this. Remember, Jesus has been teaching them from the scriptures the whole time. And they're piecing things together. But when you think about all the times that he talked about suffering and death, and I'm going to die, and on the third day raise again, and they never, they just didn't get it, it's because they didn't yet have the key. But now he's coming in and he's saying, so guys, listen, now that I'm alive, you see, you see. Now listen, think. This is what we've been talking about. And he starts, I, I bet that was the greatest teaching ser service ever in the world. As he starts piecing things together in such a way, pointing and gesturing with those nail-scarred hands, saying, it's always been about me. It's always been about me. And it's always been about the suffering. That's the whole point of the Bible. And yet with all of this, Verse 46, and he said to them, he summarizes, thus it is written 
that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Now picture, with the nailed, scarred hands, he's telling them, listen, and this is why it's written that I should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Like if you, if you wonder, why, why couldn't they understand this all along? Why couldn't they get that? Why weren't they sitting out there in folding chairs outside of the tomb waiting for what they knew was coming? Why didn't they get it? Listen, you have to understand, in Jewish writings pre-resurrection, there are no historical documents found anywhere in pre-resurrection Jewish writings, extra-biblical, I should say, but pre-resurrection Jewish writings, there are no writings anywhere that even mention a suffering Messiah. It wasn't even on their radar. I don't know what they did with passages like Isaiah 53 and 4. I don't, I don't know what they did with those, but it just wasn't in the concept. The Messiah is the conquering king, not the suffering servant. And there was no writing whatsoever in those Jewish writings as well about a resurrected Messiah. It was brand new to them. It wasn't on their radar. And catch this. As he summarizes all of this stuff, and you think through all of his ministry, all of the things that he's done, when he summarizes it, he does so without ever mentioning. He's, he's not talking about his ministry, his miracles. He's not talking about the specific teachings here and there or what a great teacher he was. He's not talking about any of those sorts of things. He summarizes it all by saying, here's the point of it all, guys. It's not my birth. It's, not, it's the point of it all. That Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And you're like, Jeff, I know, I get it. Why are you making this point? And this is, this is why. Because you could get and grasp and understand Jesus and declare him as the most extraordinary teacher that the world has ever, ever seen. The, the most extraordinary minister the world has ever seen. The most extraordinary healer the world has ever seen. The most extraordinary human being that the world has ever seen. But if you don't get the death, burial, and resurrection from the grave to conquer our sin and redeem us back to him, then you don't know Jesus. Because that's the culmination of the whole thing. You can know all sorts of things and have all sorts of belief about Jesus. But if you don't focus or if you don't understand and believe that he died for your sins, rose again from the dead to pay the price for your sin and buy you back to him, if you miss that, you miss the whole thing. You left the sixth sense with five minutes left. You miss the whole thing. And just, guys, think about this. Those disciples are in the room. Some of them saw it. Like some of them saw him on the cross. All of them see the wounds and the scars. You guys remember when we studied through this? You remember how horrific the crucifixion stuff is? We, when you think about all that, some of them saw it. They've all talked about it. And now the visible evidence is right there in front of him. I would imagine the swelling, the, all of that stuff, I would guess. And what he's saying is, guys, listen, all of these scriptures are about me. And I did all this for you. That's what he's saying. Can you imagine knowing what you had just seen over those last several days was for you, to save you, to heal you, to buy back you? What a powerful truth that is. Church, if you didn't get it over Easter, please get it now. You're free. Your shame is paid for. 
The death has been covered. It's done. If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, no matter what the world around you tells you, no matter what your own actions have told you, no matter what your conscience or background or whatever else tells you, Jesus tells you, listen, I died for your sins and I paid the price for every last one of them and I rose again to guarantee that when you die one day, it's not gonna be ashes to ashes, dust to dust for you that you're going to rise again just like me, and I did all of this for you and for my glory. Like, you need to get that. You know what I mean? Not here, right there. You need to let that drop about a foot and let God change your heart. Amen? Such a powerful thing. Well, we need to close out quickly here because Jesus is going to add something new. Verse 47 let me, I'm going to read from 46, just as it's a continuation of the sentence. But thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. This is great. Like Jerusalem was the end point, remember? Don't go to Jerusalem, Jesus. They're going to kill you if you go to Jerusalem. Jerusalem's the end. And then he actually does it, and what happens? He dies. And people are leaving Jerusalem. The guy's on the road to Emmaus. Well, we thought he was the one, and now he's dead. I guess we'll go back to Emmaus. Like, they're leaving Jerusalem. And then Jesus raises from the dead and says, no, 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 that's not the end. That is just the beginning. And Jerusalem becomes the starting point now for the spread of the gospel through churches all over the place. And I want to point something out. He says specifically to all nations, to all nations. Now, now Jesus Christ when he walked the earth, it, it wasn't like today where you can hop on a plane and you can like go visit different cultures and stuff. It's not as easy then, right? So Jesus' interactions with people was hemmed in largely by the demographics of the area he was in, which was largely Judea, Galilee, and Jerusalem. And the population of Judea, Galilee, Jerusalem is almost exclusively Jewish people. That's who he was like 99% of the time going to be around when he was in those areas. It's just the way it was. And yet, when you read the stories of Jesus, how often does it seem like he's going out of his way to reach out to people that are nothing like him? He does it all the time. People that look nothing like him, people that have different cultural backgrounds, all of that stuff. He reaches out to them. He, he goes to this Samaritan woman, someone who would be hated racially by the other Jewish people there, and he reaches out to her and forgives her sins and offers her grace. Uh, he, he gives empowerment or he, he, he considers and, and, and in, in invests in women in a way that has never been seen before. He includes children and welcomes them on the same level as he does his apostles and anyone else in many ways. He values them just the same. And I just want to encourage, like in our valley, like I know, we could make the same claim. Like it's 99% who we are and the culture is kind of the same and all this kind of stuff. But listen, there is value and it is Jesus-like to reach out to people that aren't like you, to get outside of our bubble into areas of uncomfortability. It's worth it to go to Uganda or to go to Mexico or to go to inner city, inner city, uh, inner whatever, downtown Medford, or whatever the case may be. Like, like it's Jesus-like to do that very thing, to share the gospel with people that aren't like us. And I would say this, we should do this, and, and here's why. Because we're the result of that. Because I don't know if you've been buying into too many like paintings that you see, Christian paintings in Christian bookstores or not. But the truth is this. We don't look like Jesus. 
We don't have the same cultural background as Jesus. We are nothing like culturally where Jesus was, but we have been saved because we are the byproduct of people who took these messages seriously and brought the gospel to all nations. We are here as a result of the fact that faithful Christians got outside of their comfort and outside of their own culture to spread the gospel with people that didn't look like them. Praise God, right? And so it's good that we go to Africa. It's good that we go to places that are different than us. It's good that we plant in Grants Pass. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's a little weird sometimes. No, Grants Pass is great. But listen, make an effort to do that. Because I'm telling you, the, the, the kingdom of God, the throne room, being in heaven, it's going to be awfully diverse and amazing, and I can't wait for it. But we've got to be able to do that. Don't get, let's not get stuck in our own world. Amen? Anyway, side note, let's move on. So, so here he is. And he says, listen, verse 48, and you are witnesses of these things. So he tells him, you're going to go around, you're going to proclaim the repentance of sin, you're going to proclaim the kingdom of God, and you are the witnesses of these things. Now, can you think about this? Remember who he's talking to? I mean, there were 12, they lost one, now they're down to 11. Like, he's talking to these disciples hiding in this room, some of which just failed. These, these numbskulls, you might say, these not good enoughs compared to the rest of the cultural elites and all that stuff around them. He's like, listen, you're going to be my witnesses of this to the rest of the world. Like, that's got to be the weirdest thing in the world to hear if you're in that room. Like, wait, what? We're going to, we're going to, we're going to do this? And, and, and then, not to give away the ending, but then Jesus just leaves. He just leaves them. Like, that's unbelievable. How in the world are they going to do this? And Jesus, this seems a little reckless. Well, it's because, verse 49, And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. He's saying, listen, stay here. You're going to do this, but stay here. You, you may be the car I'm going to use to drive the, 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 the message out into the rest of the world, but you've got no fuel in your tank yet. So stay here in Jerusalem, and I'm going to send the Holy Spirit upon you. It's going to be my power and my strength that's going to empower you to go and spread this message to the rest of the world. And not to give away our Acts series or anything, but they do it. They change. The, nothing has changed the world, not even close to the degree as what Christianity has done through the spread of the church. Nothing. That's one of the reasons I am really looking forward to the book of Acts in a way. Like, once we made that decision, I was really considering all this stuff, and I'm like, you know what? It'd be really good for us to go back again and look at what the Holy Spirit did and maybe get out of our comfort box a little bit and just say, Holy Spirit, will you come and do something new and fresh with us once again? I mean, those 11 people became the mechanism by which the world changed after that. That's what the Holy Spirit can do through those that will be willing and who carry the gospel. Amen? So we'll see more about that coming up. Verse 50. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. So lifting his hands there, um, it, it's kind of liturgical in a lot of ways. Like if you're new here you, or you saw people doing it during worship, the idea there is uh, um, it's like a bodily expression of what's going on on the inside. What you're asking for, what your will is, what your heart's doing in that moment. Um, and, and in a church service, it may feel weird to you, but it's not really that different. I mean, it happens in concerts or it happens in sporting events all the time. 
where like the, the embodiment of the fans watching the arena, like you, you could, without looking at the score a lot of times, look at the fans in the stands and kind of tell what's going on in the game, right? When, hands up, yeah, we scored, we're winning. Or um, what's that one, the Surrender Cobra? Have you guys heard about that? That's this. Like when the game winner hits and you're losing and you see the fans in the stands go, that's called the Surrender Cobra. This is your hands saying what your heart is trying to figure out and going, oh no, did that really just happen, right? So Jesus does this. This is what we do in worship, it's why, and it's what we should do in worship. Um, getting on our knees in prayer is the same thing. It, it's a, if you will, liturgical expression of the fact that we're bowing before God, and I, I think those are good for us. I think engaging our bodies in that way um, can help even align our heart to what we're doing in those moments. Does that make sense? And so here's Jesus, and he raises his hands up over these guys, and he blesses them, and and he prays for them. And it says in verse 51, while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they were continually in the temple blessing God. Now that scene we will analyze in great detail because that's where Acts chapter 1 picks up. So we'll talk about that scene, because that just seems crazy to me. He's like, here's what you're going to do. Now wait here, power's coming. Let me pray for you. And he's just gone. Like That had to be the craziest transition in the world. And even crazier things happened after that, because God is so good and amazing and powerful. But I want to do something with you right now. I know we're out of time, so I'm going to be crazy fast. But I want to pull this full circle. So would you turn to Luke chapter 1 for just a second with me? I promise I'll be fast. I'm going to bring it back to where we started. Some of you have joined us midway. Most of you probably forgot. But this is where we started. And in Luke chapter 1, Luke writes this little preface to the book of Luke. And he says this. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who, from the beginning, were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Now, if you remember, when we started in Luke 1, that word certainty that we talked about, it's the word asphalion. And it means certainty like I am certain as I'm standing at the base of Mount Shasta that massive 14,000 foot peak with my hand on one of the rocks and I look at it Jeff is Mount Shasta real oh I'm pretty certain it's right here I'm as certain about this as I am anything else I am certain like a mountain that it's real not certain like no I have a belief I have like a system I have a I have a philosophy but it's, it's not really tangible, but it's there. It's, I mean, that's how I believe. No, no, no. Luke says this. I'm writing this stuff so that you can know with the same assuredly, assurity, whatever that word is, as you know that there is a chair under you at this moment. With the same assurity that you know if your hand is on the base of that mountain, that Mount Shasta is real and is there, that you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God became flesh walked this earth among us perfectly in a way we never could, went to the cross where he bore our sin and our shame, and he died. And then he rose again, 
and he triumphed over death, and he ascended into heaven, and those who put their faith in him cannot just be saved and forgiven, but adopted, brought into his family, and be called sons and daughters of God. Like a mountain, you can know that. 65 sermons into Luke. What'd you get out of it? What was the purpose of it? Do you know? Like, do you know that you know? Do you know and you haven't done anything about it? Because belief leads to action, which is somewhat appropriate that Luke leads into acts. And so we're going to look at that. But listen, church, you got to know. Like, you got to know. But I have doubts. So did they. And God changed the world through them. But bring your doubts to Jesus. We'll work through that stuff. Not afraid of that stuff. But Jesus died for your sins and rose again to defeat death that you might be a child of God if you will put your belief in him. And that is a rock-solid certainty. Osphalion. Amen? So will you stand and pray with me? There's two kinds of prayers that are going to be going on right here. Some of you know this stuff, and it's time to let it make the heart drop right here. And you need to cry out to God and say, I believe, and be saved. And you can do that. As simple as that. Lord, I believe. You, I believe in all of this. Save me. He will save you. That's the prayer you need to do. The rest of us, may, maybe it is in our head. Maybe we just have, have drifted or whatever, and we need that drop once again. We need our emotions to be reawoken, and that's your prayer. And some of us, like, we know this, but we know that, man, I believe this, and I'm realizing now that I got, like, it's, I got to do something with that. Like, that belief leads to action. And so your prayer needs to be the same one that Jesus prayed for them when the Spirit came, that we want to pray that the Holy Spirit would come and empower us to do something with what he has given us through our time in Luke. And I'm going to ask, listen, you don't have to do that. I promise you, I won't judge. And I'm telling everyone else, don't judge. If you're like, that's weird, I'm not into it, I'm not really a believer, whatever, you don't have to do this. No one will shame you. In fact, we'll bring the lights down. Bring the lights down right now. Right now. No, no, right now. Right now. Uh, now. There we go. <laughs> listen, I'm going to ask that, that we do that very thing, that, that we allow the posture of our body to reflect what we're asking from our heart. So some of you, it might be bowing before God and saying, Lord, forgive me and save me, or reaching up like a child reaching to its dad. And some of us, Lord, we, we need your spirit. We need to be empowered, whatever the case may be. But I'm going to ask that we lift our hands or we bow our heads, whatever that thing, or to your knees even, whatever that happens to be for you. If you don't want to do that, don't care. We can't see it's dark. But let's let, let our bodies reflect the posture of our heart. And let's ask God for what we need from him. Amen? So, Father, in this room there are those that need you to save them. And I pray, God, that right now they might cry out to you, that you might grant them repentance, that they would turn from their sin and turn to you and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, will you save them? Also in this room, Lord, there's some that have heard these stories for years and years and years and grown cold to them, but I pray, God, that you would awaken their affections, that they might realize the reality and the gravity of these things, and then they might know them like a mountain, like we've said. And for all of us, Lord, 
Belief leads to action. So I ask, Lord, that you would pour your spirit out on Heritage Christian Fellowship, that you would empower us to share the gospel with people in this valley. Lord, empower people to invite friends to church. Empower people through relationships. Empower people with the boldness to speak the gospel in your name. Empower us to reach out to people that are not like us. Lord, may your gospel flow from this church faithfully as you've devised it. We thank you for this time in Luke. We worship you for your grace. We worship you for your majesty and for this truth that you have revealed to us. And now I pray, God, may it produce fruit in the life of this church, the life of us as individuals and corporately. Lord, may people be saved. May you grow your church, not to make a thing out of heritage, but may you add to the kingdom of God those who should be saved. Empower your people, we pray, Lord. Come, Holy Spirit, come. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. And ladies and gentlemen, that's the book of Luke. Amen. That was a great season, wasn't it? Right on, right on. Listen, next week, let me encourage you one last thing. Next week is Mother's Day, often a really easy time to get people to come to church with you. And uh, we're going to be starting our new series next week um, with one that will be very, very, I believe, encouraging and burden lifting, especially to moms and to families out there. So it'd be a really good week to invite. Invite people to church. Bring them on in. And we're going to have something special for all the ladies, not just moms, but all the ladies in general next week. So make sure you come and join us. I love you guys. God bless you.